So welcome back, everyone. Um, I am delighted to welcome you to the next of our panel discussions on the themes covered in our review. This one is focusing on devolution uh, and the territorial constitution. Uh, the previous panel very help helpfully flagged up uh, some of the questions that are bouncing around on this issue right now, but we're going to sort of look a bit more broadly, I think, at some of the questions um, that are at stake in this area. Just a practical point, if I could just remind you to turn off your mobile phones if that is an issue. Um, as you all know, I mean, devolution is a simple word and actually signals some very, very complex and variable arrangements. Um, and in fact, as we were just discussing previously, in some ways it's a rather misleading term to use across, right across the different, to characterize the different arrangements across the UK. But nevertheless, there clearly are some common elements. The focus in this panel is on is how Britain's government and parliament, the Westminster Parliament, have adapted to the emergence and complexities of devolved government and the impact of some of the major challenges associated with recent seismic events. Um, in my introduction previously, right at the beginning, I did point out some of the different, uh, we had a slide and you could see some of the different reports that we have published as part of the review in this area. So I won't list those again, but I just want to um, plug, if I could, two or three things that were not on that slide for different reasons. One, which didn't get a mention, but are very germane to what we are going to be talking about. One is a uh, recently published, very punchy proposal from um, John Denham and Philip Rycroft, who's somewhere here, which makes the case for different institutional reforms uh, in Whitehall in order to make an English devolution system work, which I highly recommend. And a bit like the British Constitution, as it goes on and on, this review actually goes on and on because we have two more papers we will be publishing next week uh, in the coming days, uh, which touch on issues that this panel will be covering. One is by Dan Wincott on devolution in Wales, a short paper. Another by Kieran Martin here, who's taking the forward view and has written a very interesting paper on how the devolved union might develop in years to come. And I'm going to be sort of asking him to talk a little bit about one or two of his ideas from that paper. That, though, is your homework for later. Um, let's turn to the excellent panel that we've got to discuss these themes with us today. I'm going to put some questions to them, as we've done in previous panels, and then I'll leave some time for questions from the room and also online towards the end of the session. So, a quick intro. To my right, to Robert Buckland. Uh, Robert is Conservative MP for South Swindon. He has served as Secretary of State for Wales and for Justice, and has been Lord Chancellor and Solicitor General for England and Wales. And then on my immediate right, Christine Jardine is Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West. At Westminster, she's the Lib Dem spokesperson for Women and Equalities, the Cabinet Office, and Scotland. And then to my left, immediately, Kieran Martin. Kieran is Professor of Practice in the Management of Public Organisation. That's a real mouthful, isn't it? You need a simpler, you need an acronym. Anyway, he's all that at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford. Uh, and he was, in a previous life, the director of the Constitution Group within the UK government. So obviously very pertinent for what we'll be talking about today. 
And to my left again is Jessica Studdart, who is Deputy Chief Executive of the Think Tank New Local and previously political advisor to the Labour Group at the Local Government Association. So welcome all, thank you for joining us. A question to you each. Uh, Robert, can I start with you? Um, you'll be familiar with this phrase, devolve and forget, yeah. which has been used quite a lot recently to characterise quite a long sort of historical period in terms of British government policy. Um, do you recognise that term? I do. Um, I think it's right to say that it, it should be regarded as a historic term now because there was a clear and conscious uh, uh, decision made by, in fact, by the Johnson government to consign that to the history books. I think what had happened uh, is that we sort of got ourselves into position of, uh, a position of devolve and forget because uh, of the pressures of the workload and I think the capacity issues. I think it was convenient for uh, many uh, officials and politicians to say, well, you know, that's not, a, that's, a, that's not our problem now. It's Scotland's problem or it's Cardiff's problem. And I think, I think there was a convenience aspect to this, which really got hold of, of the mindset uh, in parts of Whitehall uh, and indeed in, in, in Parliament itself, which I think was very damaging. Um, because uh, if you really are committed to the union, you've got to take an interest in every part of it, no matter where which part that you might represent. Now, you know, I'm a bit unusual in that I'm a very proud Welshman representing an English seat, if you like, and a bit of an embodiment of the union. Uh, so therefore, I was always going to have an interest in matters across uh, the River Severn. But that, sadly, is not the case, I think, in far too many uh, instances. And that sort of crept in, I think, to thinking. Uh, there was a conscious attempt to uh, reverse that. I think Michael Gove when he was uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and of course later he's in the Leveling Up Department, uh, absolutely believes this passionately. Uh, and uh, we, we, in government, had a, uh, a cabinet committee on the union, uh, which included me and, and the territorials and, and others uh, with an expertise or interest in the issue. And I think that uh, progressively we've been moving away from that. And I think one of the the, the, the practical realities that forced us to move away from that was COVID. Mm. And I'm sure we'll talk uh, in more detail about the, the, the experience that we all had intergovernmentally uh, and some of the tensions that existed and, and the realities that, that, that then appeared in stark form when I, I'm, I'm not going to name names out of court, but <laughs> where people for the first time realised that actually the devolved uh, governments did have power to do things differently, mm. um, you know, whisper it not. Um, and I think that was a very important object lesson in the reality that whilst you devolve, you certainly cannot forget. Thank you very much. Um, Christine, the same sort of question really, but about yeah. Westminster, it doesn't quite work in the same way, but I mean, in your time at Westminster, do you think, is your sense that politicians, MPs, are, have, have learned to engage in devolution? Are they interested? How does that work? Well, in a way, I find that a strange question because there is a generation of politicians at Westminster who are responsible for devolution. They created devolution. Okay, a good many of them now are in the House of Lords, but there are also a hundred of us who represent, more than a hundred, who represent um, constituencies with a devolved administration as well. And you then have MPs like Robert and Michael Gove who were born and brought up in you know, parts of the country which now have devolved administ administrations, and then you have London. So I think 
there is more of an understanding in Westminster of devolution than perhaps um, sometimes um, opponents of devolution. And I would include in that separatists who, for whom devolution is not the ideal solution. So Westminster is often portrayed as being you know, anti-devolution. Now, yes, amongst the MPs, there, is, there are different levels of commitment, different attitudes to it. But I think politicians, all parliamentarians, have an understanding of devolution because it affects even those who are not um, from Scotland or Wales and Northern Ireland, it affects the, you know, what, you know, the, the legislation in which they're involved. It does affect it. So you've got that. But I think there is also another side to it, which is the kind of othering of Westminster by a lot of um, nationalist parties in this country. They tend to um, cut Westminster out of the thinking and behave as if Westminster has no business being involved in anything Scottish or Welsh, forgetting that there are 100 elected representatives <laughs> from Scotland and Wales in Westminster who have a responsibility, and that devolution is part of the whole structure. So I think you have different attitudes in Westminster and you know between the parties, but I think there is an understanding. More than that, one of the things I learned um, during the coalition, is that there's a much greater understanding in Whitehall of devolution than it's often given credit for. Because um, the, the civil servants, a lot of them are Scottish and Welsh, and were brought up under devolved administrations. So Westminster is not apart from devolution. Mm -hmm. Westminster is a part of devolution. Thank you. I will come back to Whitehall for sure in the conversation. Um, Kieran, going back to this much-trailed paper, um, you, one of your key arguments in it that you think what's been lacking in some ways in British government is something of a, of a vision um, for the devolved union or perhaps its different parts. Can you just tell us what you mean by that and why you think that's important? Well, firstly, thank you for trailing my unpublished masterpiece and being very kind about the fact that it's late. It will than, come out. Um, uh, so, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is it, there are four broad futures for the landmass known as the United Kingdom. And one is separation of some form, and plenty of people seek that. But it, for the purpose of this discussion, we set it to one side because if you're talking about Westminster and Whitehall's approach to the Union, then. Uh, Presumably you talk about the tactics and strategies to prevent that outcome, but it's, it's, it's there and it's obviously very much um, uh, a sustainable political uh, proposition. But of the three, there are, if you like, three different directions it can go. Uh, for shorthand, they all begin with M. So there's muscular, a very sort of singular British state vision, uh, which seeks to, if you like, minimise the national differences between England, Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland seeks to harmonise, perhaps, the institutional arrangements um, uh, between them, and importantly, project a sort of very singular uh, vision of Britishness, and emblematically, culturally, and tonally, if you like, uh, which has not really been uh, to the forefront since the devolution settlements. That's muscular. 
There's a sort of multinational, uh, which would be you know, quasi-federalism, whatever you want to call it, but very much more a sort of, you know, th this is, you know, to use a, the language of Welsh Labour's manifesto in 2021, which is politically coherent but legally nonsensical, you know, it's a voluntary association of four constituent parts pooling sovereignty. That's your sort of intellectual starting point there. Now, often that's been portrayed as concessionary, but some people make a, po as indeed Welsh Labour do, they make a positive case for that, and that <laughs> is also a, a sustainable political proposition. They all are. Uh, the third M is muddling through. You know, history has bequeathed us this slightly weird asymmetrical uh, situation. How do we make the best of it? Now, I don't think there's any completely coherent way that survives contact with reality of pursuing muscular, multinational, or muddling through. But which of those three do you broadly favour as a government? Because then you start to, what, which outcome do you seek to achieve? I think they all have problems. You know, multinational, um, uh, probably, uh, the muscular criticism of multinational unionism is that it weakens the British state to the point of pointlessness. The muscular one doesn't survive contact with Northern Ireland, in my view. We might come to that uh, later. Uh, the muddling through one, we will debate its imperfections, uh, uh, no doubt. Finally, um, I do think that you know, there's a little bit of tactical complexity in this, which is that you know, we're going on to Jessica with her expertise in England and local government. I do think sometimes we talk about devolution. And we're talking of two or three quite different things. The balance of power between central and local government in England is a technocratic transactional issue about how you want to organize society in a stable body politic. Scotland and Wales is different. It's how do you accommodate, if at all, different national identities within a single state. Northern Ireland is how do you reconcile all of that with the guaranteed right by treaty to profess allegiance and be a citizen of another state, which is a most unusual arrangement. There are three quite different things, and we tend to say, oh, it's about the relationship between the centre and the periphery. It's a bit more complicated than that. Thank you. Um, I'm always thinking we don't need to publish your paper. We've summarised it so well, uh, but we will. Um, that tees up really nicely. The question to Jessica, um, which is a sort of similar point in a way. Um, I mean, you've written a lot about local government and devolution in the English context. Um, how well do you think central government manages its relations with both? Well, thank you. I think um, just at the outset, I'd say there's two two big things that sort of characterise the relationship between central government and local government. One is that we are um, an extremely centralised country, um, the UK generally, but England specifically. Um, we're an international outlier in terms of the degree of decision-making that's concentrated centrally, um, both in terms of um, how expenditure is allocated um, and also how revenue is raised. So we're a highly centralised country. Um, and also, from a constitutional perspective, um, local government itself has no legal right to exist. Um, it has no constitutional protection. Um, and de devolved arrangements um, um, within England, the combined authorities also don't. So that creates a degree of sort of fragility and, and, and lopsidedness, asymmetry in the relationship. Um, and I just wanted to touch on a few kind of areas in which that sort of manifests, mostly from the perspective of local government, but, but similarly for, for the new sort of devolved uh, structures. Um, so local government is sort of managed from DLUC, or whatever it's called, but DLUC at the moment. Um, but two big functions that local government does, upper tier local authorities, are social care, children's social care and adult social care. Um, DLUC doesn't have a remit over those areas. Um, adult social care is housed in the Department for Health and Social Care and children's social care is housed in 
uh, DfE. So there's no sort of single view in Whitehall of what councils do. To be a council leader or a chief executive is to have an intricate sort of understanding of the interplay of economic factors, social policy, education, and sort of see things in the round and quite have a holistic understanding of place. But for Whitehall, it's to have a series of silos and local governments in the deluxe box. Um, but that means there's no one really at the centre sort of advocating for what is happening in the round. Um, second element is um, finances. Obviously, finances are incredibly fragile um, in local government. Um, there's obviously a series of policy decisions that have kind of led to that, um, but some of this is also structural. So um, the, the, um, the, the fact that local government is constrained by having to set legally a balanced budget every year means that there's a limit on what it can spend, um, but there's also real set limits at the centre on what it can raise. So central governments, um, different political colours, different administrations, hate raising tax. Um, they hate, they hate um, um, uh, going to the country and saying we're going to increase the tax burden on you, apart from when it's council tax, <laughs> because that's not their responsibility. It's something they can devolve and, and forget. Um, but it is, it's an area in which, uh, if, if you were looking at it objectively, there's a whole load of, kind of risk that's passed down to the lo local level. Um, and that has kind of an interplay again when, when there's not an enormous amount of institutional understanding of what the consequences are locally for things like cutting early intervention or prevention support and rise in demand for acute services. Um, and there's also a sort of, I guess this is a kind of cultural thing, but there's a kind of, in our system of government, uh, the Whitehall kind of model, there's a bit of a, a split between policy is made by the experts at the centre in the civil service, very clever people, and it's then delivered and implemented locally. I mean, local government is a kind of delivery arm of the central state, and there's a split, decision and implementation. And there's not good sort of feedback loops. So what happens when implementation goes wrong? We see it a lot. Uh, you know, you can see it, you can see it in, in, in various different ways, but things like universal credit rollout, the, the local area is tasked with kind of making the best fist of it, but there's no kind of interface. So devolution is kind of an interesting term, and obviously there's different kind of ma uh, policy manifestations of it, but it's always seen as a sort of a linear process or zero, zero sum, more power at the centre and more power locally. Um, but I also think that it needs to kind of focus on that kind of virtuous circle, that feedback loop. So how can that expertise on the ground actually also inform better policy decision-making at the centre? Um, so um, that's a great place at which to land, actually, for me, because I wanted to follow up exactly that point about the zero-sum nature of devolution. I mean, what some people have talked about, more outside England, I guess, is about this is a system where there's been a lot of focus on giving, self, I suppose, promoting self-rule, handing powers wholesale to different um, devolved governments, uh, much less focus on shared rule and on the kind of bit institutionally or culturally, the how you bring together those different um, governments. But also, there's a sort of slightly separate question of how do you continue to represent the nations and regions at the centre of British government and indeed in Parliament? So they're two related but slightly separate things. Um, so I just wanted to kick that, get you to kick that around for a bit. I mean, Christine, is this, is this something you think is a weakness of our version of, de of devolution. I mean, many other countries, obviously federal countries, but even other devolved systems have much more kind of um, connection, connectivity between those governments. I think much of that, the answer to that depends on whether you think that devolution is 
an event or it's a process, which was the argument in Scotland at the time of devolution. Mm -hmm. Is it a one-off and there you go, there's your finite answer, or is it a process through which you discover how you devolve better, you discover how you maintain the identity at the centre, the relationship between the two, and it won't surprise you to know that as a Liberal Democrat, for me, the answer is you devolve towards federalism. And you, the answer is to have a much more federalised structure in the way that we see in, in Germany or the United States. And that I think that what we're learning about devolution is that it will eventually devolve into that sort of structure. But it has to happen personally, I believe, organically. And it ha happened in Scotland organically. It happened, I believe, in Wales organically. And it will happen in England organically. And it was a very interesting paper. You may have talked about it this morning. Gordon Brown did about the five mm. pillars of federalism. Mm. And um, he talked about how the, the mayors, um, particularly Greater Manchester, became or were becoming, a couple of years ago, the focus of this move towards devolving and power away from Westminster towards local government. And that that was a much more natural model than one where perhaps somebody sat in Whitehall and drew on a map, well, that's Yorkshire and there's Cornwall and they'll want. And that it evolved more naturally. And I think that um, if, if it's answering your question, that is where we will eventually go. And that is because I believe devolution is a process towards the, the most efficient form of government. And I don't think we're there yet, and I think that's why we have this problem with Westminster and the argument between the centre, um, between Westminster and um, Holyrood or Westminster and Cardiff is because the relationship isn't set yet. It hasn't reached the most efficient for both. It's still developing. Can I um, go to you, Kieran, just on something Christine said earlier, Whitehall? Um, obviously, you know, given your particular calling on your, your time in your previous life in, in government, um, do you think that, I mean, there have been a number of proposals made by people, I guess, who want to take this in a different direction, uh, Lord Dunlop's reports, who've, other arguments that actually the union itself needs to be made a sort of more coherent, or uh, some sort of location within Whitehall needs to be established from which the kind of vision you're talking about might be developed for the different parts of the UK. Different proposals around. Um, what's your sense of that? I mean, do you think Whitehall needs to be reorganised in some way, or, or is this more about culture? I think it's a very tough question. Um, if it was easy, you know, there would be a bunch of easy options to think about. My thought experiment in all this is, let's say you had a prime minister who said, and not talking in a party political sense, you know, I'm really seized of a crisis in the union. You know, I'm taking a long view. Uh, this is very unstable. I'm going to focus loads of time on this. And the currency of government, or a lot of the currency of government, is money and activity. So let's say you set up a centre for the union or a department for the union and said, even in these tight fiscal times, I'm going to give this a billion pounds. What, what would you do with a billion pounds for the union? Yeah, and that's, what government, that's how government thinks. It thinks about programmes. It thinks about spending. It thinks about activity. And you're asking it to do things that are about culture and feeling and emotion and identity. And you're asking it to do things that are about 
mechanisms of government. Now, it's better at the second of those than it is at the first. Now, it can do things. So on the multinational unionism model, you might argue that the 2012 opening ceremony of the Olympics was a very confident projection of a decentralized multinational UK. Equally, there were some people on the more muscular unionist side who were saying, and it sounded sort of crazy and flippant, but actually, you know, France would have done it to put the national, to put the union flag on the COVID vaccines, you know, just make sure there was that, you know, you can do these sorts of things, but they're very, very hard. What I do think that there is, and you know, we may again talk about, for example, the first use of section um section 35 being used to block um, devolved legislation. You may talk about referrals and so forth. I think there are things where um, you know, a bit more capacity and in that wiring part of, 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 of Whitehall um, uh, could be brought to bear usefully. But it would be within what sort of United Kingdom are you trying to build? And I do think that, but I do think it's very, very hard to use the mechanisms of government to do this. But. Quickly, I, agree. I actually think the mechanisms of government are the wrong place to do it. I think the reason um, devolution was accepted so widely in Scotland so immediately was because it came from a non-governmental body. It came from a commission that was set up separately. And I think if you do it in Whitehall, you will have civil service think will feed into it. Government think will feed into it. And then you lose the organic nature of it. You lose the public ownership of it. And if we're going to create a United Kingdom that survives on a multinational level, then each of those national, each of those um, nations must regard it as their own and not something created by one of the others. And that's what you'll get if it's created in Whitehall. Can I just ask you, Robert, to come in? Uh, well, look, I, th I think th th this is developing to a very powerful point that I found when I was uh, Wales Secretary of State, that you know, if you just look at the union or devolution through the prism of the institutions, mm -hmm. you, you're, you're really not understanding the full panoply of what needs to be involved because culturally, community-wise, you know, there are so many organisations, bodies, communities out there that you know, very often aren't spoken to. And frankly, my view as, as, as a UK government minister with, you know, you go back to money and, and laws, with a pot of money, the Shared Prosperity Fund, was to engage directly with other parts of the state and other, uh, other parts of the community in Wales, whether that was local government, which we did quite effectively, or indeed the voluntary sector as well, having those direct conversations, uh, which was a, a good way of reminding everybody that actually the UK government spends a lot of money mm -hmm. in Wales, as it does in Scotland, uh, and yet there were times that I felt, my friends in Cardiff, um, and this I think was institutional rather than party political, were not at all interested in emphasising the fact the UK government was a vital partner in this. Uh, and therefore I think that that direct conversation with the community mm. is a vital part of how we understand true devolution. I mean true devolution. Yeah. Because one of the fears that I know exists in Scotland, certainly exists in Wales, is that you replace one centralising authority for another. Uh, and that other authority, be it a devolved government, takes a view that everything can be done from its hub as opposed to a true devolution across that particular part of the UK. And therefore we've got to be mindful and we've got to be honest about that as well. And I think one thing we've not talked about here, we, I think I think Kieran's three M's is a really helpful way of looking at it, is that the fundamental difference between what is now legislative devolution 
in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and really what is administrative devolution in England, they are very different creatures, and they need to be understood differently. You know, is there an, I mean, we, we went down the road in the Northeast referendum 20 years or so ago, which was rejected, of potentially creating a legislative body. It doesn't seem to me to be there's, there's much call for it. Rather than having that arid debate, we've got to work out in England how genuinely we can connect with communities in a way that makes them feel that they have greater control <laughs> over yeah. their own futures. And I think that's a very tough nut to crack. I'll come to just you in a minute on that. I mean, obviously, you should say some of, the, some of this is very contested and the perspectives from the devolved governments will be uh, that something else is yeah. happening there. Uh, and certainly the, we, I mentioned earlier, went round the UK and talked to people in different places and you know, there was, a, and I'll come to this, I'll put a question to you on this, Robert, later, there was a, there's a real sort of concern in some parts of the, both in Wales and Scotland, that um, muscular unionism, as you call it, actually is potentially eroding the basis of the, of the devolved mm. settlement. So we'll come back to that, but I want to come back to Jessica on sort of this similar sort of theme. Um, the idea, this question about how local government and maybe devolved government, particularly mayors, might be better represented uh, and their voice better heard within the centre, mm. British government politics. I mean, and in particular, there's this idea banging around about a, a council of mayors, if we ever have enough mayors to form a council. What do you think? I mean, I think I absolutely would support... I mean, what's interesting about devolution as it's taken the form of the last sort of 10 years or so is there's been a kind of bilateral relationship between central government and the areas negotiating the deal and creating the new structures and they are beginning to become a more kind of collective force and a collective voice so you're beginning to see a difference between what started off as a bit of a separate kind of potentially divide and rule um, approach and there's now you know there's a more collective agenda for for how how a devolved uh, nation would look I guess the one, the one thing I'd say um, to the premise of that question, and I think it speaks to the, the subject we're talking about today, is so far devolution has required change in local areas. It's not required much change at the centre. Mm. And so although I think you know, convening a, a sort of structure and a collective voice and a shared collective agenda to uh, rationalise and systematise the agenda, not have it be so ad hoc, um, is a good thing. I also think that there's a need to shift how the centre orientates itself and, 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 and works. And by that I mean, at the moment, devolved powers are sort of an opt-out from the normal way of doing government. And only recently, after 10 years of devolution being a policy, only recently was real progress made with the trailblazer devolution areas, which really got an, uh, uh, the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, which now have control over a single pot, well, in a couple of years, they'll have control over a single pot of funding, uh, which they have much fuller autonomy and control over. That's required a big shift at the centre, and it's bit, mm. that's no small element of progress. Mm. Um, but I think if, if devolution was to really kind of mainstream within England, it would, be, it would shift from being a sort of fragile policy decision to a, a deeper sort of governance shift, and there'd be some universal principles there, um, and how the centre works with all areas, not just the 40% or whoever is covered by a mayoral authority, um, there'd be a different interface with England. Thank you. So um, time is flashing past um, and there's so many questions. I'm going to, um, in the remainder of my time, put one question, a different question to each of you, and then I want to open it out to the audience. Um, Kieran, can we just go back to Northern Ireland, which yeah. you mentioned briefly? Um, in terms of, I mean, obviously, it's a, you know, it's a very big moment in Northern Ireland in terms of the, the suspension of the devolved institutions and the, the impact that's having 
on the sort of quality of governance, I guess, and how that affects people's everyday lives. And this cr is creating an immense dilemma for the British state. Um, I mean, rather, you might want to speak to that specifically, but more generally, do you think that, I mean, you emphasised the sort of specificity of Northern Ireland. This is a different kind of situation within the, the wider union. We have a sort of machinery of government um, that is very distinctive for dealing with Northern Ireland, its own civil service, we've got then the NIO, and things, things are just managed institutionally differently. Is that the right way to go? Or do you think actually British policy to Northern Ireland means, or there's a case for integrating Northern Ireland within a wider focus on the union? Uh, personally, and this will be contentious, I think it needs to be specific. I think it needs to take account of three or four fundamental realities. One is, as I said earlier, the constitutional arrangement, you know, the right to pledge allegiance to and be a citizen of another state and to join another state so should, uh, should a majority so wish is, is profoundly unusual internationally, but it's the real, it's a constitutional reality of the United Kingdom ratified by referendum and enshrined in uh, treaty. Uh, secondly, you know, there's a sort of turgid argument about to what extent withdrawal from the EU uh, uh, broke the agreement. I think um, whatever the rights and wrongs of that, and clearly the letter of it was not uh, breached. Uh, North-South uh, dynamics were an integral part of the discussions and had the, had the single market not been around, a set of arrangements that looked something like the single market might well have been uh, the answer, so it's very destabilising. Thirdly, I think what we underestimate is that whilst, according to polls, you know, support for the union is comfortably above uh, 50%, uh, support for a model of Northern Ireland that is, to use Mr. Thatcher's famous quote, as British as Finchley, is below 50% and has been for some years, has been for about more than five years. Mm. Um, you know, uh, more than 55% of people are now voting for parties that think in a post-Brexit world, um, uh, arrangements are needed for Northern Ireland that differ from the rest of the United Kingdom. And I actually think, you know, some, the, intellectually, the hardline unionists are right. That is, a, that is a constitutional change. It is a weakening of the union as certainly relates to the northeast of England or even Scotland, um, but it is the, it is the preferred uh, uh, wish. So I think a Northern Ireland policy has to take account of those, uh, of, 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 those, of those realities, and that's why something bespoke is, 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 is needed for Northern Ireland. Um, you know, there has clearly been a failure of local political leadership. You know, there's been very little progress uh, in a quarter of a century towards reconciliation and any form of shared agenda, and that's on the local leadership, not particularly on uh, Whitehall. But I think you, know, you wrote a paper, uh, which I commend uh, a couple of years ago, if you like, on, on the two Northern Ireland policies since 2010 that were run in parallel uh, by Conservative-led administrations. One is uh, you know, very much integrate, make it part of the UK, the other is uphold the 98 settlement. The two, in my view, are incompatible. You have to pick one or the other to broadly major on. Interesting. Um, Christine, federalism, mm -hmm. just to follow up on that, um, which obviously is, you know, is, a, is an old idea, but it is an idea that the British constitutional tradition has, has long kept at bay. Um, there are a number of, you are well know, challenges that are always put to people who advocate the federalist solution. One of them is England and its size and <laughs> yes. dominance in the union. Uh, the other, well, there are a lot of others, but I suppose encapsulate them. How would we get to that? I mean, what, what, would, what is the sort of process of change 
by which that would lead us. I mean, you've sort of almost implied earlier that it would be kind of extending devolution in a dynamic or organic way, I think you said, and that we'll eventually settle in a federal solution. But what, what if we don't? I mean, what if actually um, it, we never quite are quite sure where to stop? Is there another way to get to a federal solution, do you think? Is that not Kieran's muddling through version? Yeah. We'll muddle through, we'll find another version of the union that keeps us going for another 300 years and isn't quite right and doesn't quite suit everybody, but, you know, it gets us through year by year and we muddle through. Um, and as he said, the muscular form of unionism is very unpopular, certainly in Scotland, um, and is seen as undermining. It, it causes resentment and undermines the union. So to, then you have the multinational one, just, sorry, borrow your model, Kieran, but the multinational one for me leads to federalism. You recognise the different identities within the United Kingdom and you allow them, you devolve the power to its, its natural level. Now, I think the mistake that was made in the past was in seeing England either as a unit on its own and then you have this strange asymmetric relationship or as seeing it in an old model um, which I alluded to before, you know, Yorkshire, Cornwall, Essex, you know, look at, you know, those regions. And one thing I would say about Scotland, and I don't know if the Scots in the audience would agree with me, I hope they would, that Scotland isn't a unified model. Scotland has, you know, I'm from West Central Scotland. Highlanders are completely different and have a completely different outlook in life, a different tradition, a different a different heritage. I've lived and worked in Edinburgh for a long time. It's different again. It's, so England is like that. So it will find, England will find its own model of devolution. If you allow the power to be devolved out, I know it sounds very highfalutin, but if you allow the, the power to be devolved out naturally, it will find the units which work. And I genuinely think that the metropolitan mayors and those sort of regional councils could form the basis of it. And then you will have a, gen, a genuine federal structure begin to emerge. I don't think we can work out what it is on a piece of paper and draw it in the way that they were able to do, say, after the American Civil War. You can't do that. You have, it has to develop organically. And you have to, the public has to take ownership of it, the, um, the electorate. Um, I spoke earlier about Scotland. The Constitutional Convention mm -hmm. is the reason that devolution works, because it was a solution which Scotland came up with, and it's a parliament designed in the image that Scotland wanted. Not, it's not seen, certainly by Scots, as something, I, the majority of Scots, I don't think, as something that Westminster created, or the English created, or the Union created. It was the Constitutional Convention, and then the Calman Commission. And I think that's where, that's why I think it's important that we have extra governmental bodies okay. for the North of England. And you know, now I'm doing it, but you know, <laughs> for the different areas. Let me just jump from that to to point to Jessica. I mean. As this model emerges or may not emerge, how important is the fiscal question? I mean, do you think, and David Lidington made this point earlier, do you think that devolved and maybe local government should have greater revenue 
raising powers? I do, yes. And I think just picking up on some of the, the points that have been made in the discussion about a sort of structures approach, and I think there's a real devolution is sort of sent, seen as what new things do you create? So you can create, you sort of disband RDAs, you create combined authorities, uh, you create some LEPs and then they don't really work very well, so you sort of disband those. But there's always a sort of reason why you would create a new structure and then give it a new set of responsibilities um, rather than reinforce and empower the existing structures, which is harder, um, but equally has this powerful way, potentially, of, of, of creating change. Um, and I think I said in my opening remarks, um, England is an outlier in terms of the amount of fiscal centralisation there is in this country. And I think that it's, it's, it's becoming increasingly apparent that you, can, you can't link it definitively, but you can, highly, you, can, you can highly correlate it to a range of things like our weak uh, productivity growth, our regional inequality. Mm. When you look at other countries that have much greater levels of fiscal, fiscal decentralisation, um, they manage to combine it with greater regional equality. And um, they, it's about a kind of, I think one of, the, one of the themes throughout this discussion is at what scale do you take what decisions and at what level, you know, national as a UK, uh, national across the, the four nations, um, but then at what level do you, do you pass power down? I think there's, fiscal devolution scares a lot of politicians because they think it's about more tax. Um, it could be, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. It could be about devolving existing tax. So in a lot of countries, um, a share of income tax that's raised locally is, is kept locally. I think there's quite a strong political argument for that, potentially. And I think that um, one of the challenges of local, local democracy is people think that there's not much participation, there's not much reason for people to get out and vote. And that's because there's lot, lots of misunderstanding about what local government does, and there's a lot of confusion. But I think mm. if they knew... That where their taxes were going, there's a much greater kind of efficacy. Um, so I think fiscal devolution is something that the policy world will carry on talking about. Um, the mayors will, it's the next logical place for English devolution to go. But I think it's a big, it's a big shift for the centre. Yeah. Fiscal devolution, if you've noticed, Scotland and Wales have been rather reluctant to use it when they've been given it. And I wonder why. You know why. Because... There's a political fear that once they start raising money for their schemes, then there's going to be, shall we say, a reckoning to be had. It's called accountability, I and mean, we're very used to it in Westminster. Um, and I'm not pouring cold water over the ideal of fiscal devolution. I'm just pointing out the reality that when you offer it to organisations or to bodies, they don't want to use it. Now, what goes with fiscal devolution has to be some sort of legislature, doesn't it? In order to approve or decide these things. You can't just give a body the power to levy taxes without any accountability to local people. So what you're really talking about is legislative devolution. And here's the problem. You say, federalism, all very well. It's never going to work. It's never going to work in this country because people in England don't want that level of devolution. That's the challenge I'm going to put back to you. When it's been offered, for example, to the North East, it was redoundingly rejected and I've yet to see any compelling model that suggests there's a, a big cry for that legislative and fiscal devolution. No, I'm not saying that, that you know, the model is, is, is one that would be wholly wrong. I think, I think the Metropolitan Mayor's model is one that is developing well. And you can see why, as a result of the powers they've now got, that they want that greater autonomy. I think that's laudable. But with that power comes responsibility. 
And how do you create responsibility? You have to elect people. Thank you. Um, I really want to get to questions, but Jessica, you're going to reply to that in one second. Well, my one word is democracy, because the, um, if it's devolved to local government, there's accountability at the ballot box. And I think the argument about the North East um, mayoral assembly, it's the same for the elected mayor referendum in, in about 10 years ago. People with the greatest respect, people don't tend to vote for more politicians or more structures, right. but they do vote to take back control. Yeah. They vote for more power. So, so when things are presented as a structure or a, a kind of a process in itself, it doesn't really resonate with people. But if it is presented as more accountability over the taxes you pay, the services you use, the system that supports you, I think there's a, there's a bigger political argument to be made. So we've, we've written a report that goes on about the importance of public input. So we've got to have some questions from the audience. Um, right, hands are shooting up. I've got three, four, five people in a row. And uh, online, if you could um, uh, submit your questions via Slido. So the first person is the gentleman here. Thank you. My name's Charlotte Kearney, and uh, I look at the picture on the side of the wall there of Martin McGuinness mm. and Ian Paisley, and I was an advisor in the executive at that time, and I think to the zeitgeist of people and power and purpose that happened around that time, the reason that we were able to establish the parameters of partnership that led to, for a period, structured devolution that actually built social purpose and social hope. One of the key elements of that was the partnership between the UK government and the government of Ireland. We've had a tremendous discussion today, lots of very interesting, innovative and exciting ideas and issues. Part of the difficulty is that you're talking about devolution for the UK but not talking about perhaps the most important brick in the Jenga pile, which is the relationship with the government of Ireland. If that relationship is not recovered and replenished to manage the circumstances of Northern Ireland that Ciarán has touched upon, then uh, there are significant questions to answer, and I'd like the panel just to talk about that. Thank you. Um, uh, Philip behind. Hi, thanks, Mike. Philip Rycroft from the Bennett Institute. Uh, just one slight correction, fiscal devolution. I'm a Scottish taxpayer. I pay rather more tax um, than anybody else yeah. equivalent rate yeah. in this room. So it is being used uh, and, uh, and actually is informing the debate in Scotland in an interesting way. But uh, I, really a broader question. There's been through the discussion about the sort of nature of the union. Kieran will remember when we were working on, uh, for the UK government on the Scottish referendum campaign, Winning week in, week out the argument of the head, more or less, but losing the argument of the heart, this question of the emotional commitment to the union. You look at the polling since then, particularly amongst the youngsters in Scotland, but also increasingly in Wales. So my question really, are we, are we bound to be looking at what is a more transactional union? What you were saying to Robert about spending money, the UK uh, states spending money in the devolved parts of... Uh, of, of the country in order to make its presence felt? Or do you think it is possible uh, for the UK state to remake the emotional case for union as it existed in the 50s, 30s or before? Um, I thought about it quite hard for seven years and couldn't find an answer to that, but if somebody has got an answer, it'd be very interesting. And next to you, Hugh, and then we'll come to this side. Uh, yeah, just there. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks, uh, Hugh Rawlings. I used to work for the Welsh Government, and I'm not going to be provoked by Sir Robert Buckland's account <laughs> of the UK 
government's activities in Wales recently. Um, my question was rather more um, general. Um, it was about the state, the nature of the union state, really, and it, it draws on something that uh, Kieran wrote um, previously about how the union is no longer being held together by consent, but is being maintained through law. Does the panel agree? And if so, what follows? Thank you. I'm just gonna, we're going to get really quick answers to those because I can see some other hands. I want to get as many people in as possible. Um, Northern Ireland, Kieran, do you want to answer that question? Um, well, just really quickly, uh, to Jarla's point, I think the uh, decline in relations between London and Dublin uh, over the recent years, I mean, they're bet better now than they were at the low point, but still some way off their late noughties peak uh, is a bit of a tragedy. Um, you know, it may... Uh, offend some sensibilities to have that close relationship, but it really worked. And uh, you know, I hope that over the course of the next, uh, it took a long time to build those relationships from mistrust of the 80s. Yeah, and, it, and it's particularly important now with the absence of an assembly. You know, strand two is there, yeah. and we should be absolutely maxing out on that relationship. Between. I agree. And of course, uh, you know, there are potentially profound changes in Dublin ahead, which would yeah. complicate things enormously. But uh, as until uh, as an unless and until that happens and even if it does you know it is a it is a critical relationship for, yep. for for these things and just on on on, on law i mean um on uh, hugh's point on the on the on the uh the point i was making in that paper just for those who are less familiar with it is that i think certainly under the multinational model um there would need to be agreed exit models for uh, the united kingdom and there is for northern ireland of a sort it leaves a lot of discretion to the uk government um but there isn't one for scotland um, and we now know that for sure. You know, there is no trigger, recognised trigger. Uh, so we accept, again, oddly, from an international, you know, Spain does not accept Catalonia's right to secede. Uh, the UK does accept Scotland's right to secede, but provides no mechanism for it that anybody would recognise as that is what we need to achieve to do it. That's what I said. Um, the emotional connection. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, the ties that bind. I mean, I talk about it all the time. You know, if you come to my constituency, you will find thousands of families who have links all over the UK. And it's, it, you know, that's the modern way of expressing it. You know, you've got people who've gone to Edinburgh University or gone to Wales to be educated or come to England. You know, you've got all those familial, emotional friendship ties that are hugely important and are part of the lifeblood of the whole island and indeed into Northern Ireland as well. And therefore, you know, you can't go back to the 50s. You know, it's not about that, but it's about the reality of lives for people today you know, I've got a lot of my residents whose mum, parents might still live in another part of the country in Scotland or Wales, and they go back regularly and they've got those emotional and familial links. Now, that's got to mean something. And when you add that up, that's a huge amount of people and a huge amount of sentiment that I think is still the glue that really binds us together. Okay. Can I, yeah, just on quickly. that point, you talked about the referendum. Now, as you and Kieran probably know, I was quite heavily involved in the referendum as well. And yes, we did win the argument of the head every week, but it wasn't that that won the referendum. What won the referendum, I firmly believe now looking back at it, and it wasn't the vow by Gordon Brown, it was fear. And that fear of the heart, the argument in the heart only came to the fore when the SNP went ahead in the polls. And then people... It was like a kick in the, the gut to the body politic in Scotland. People went, oh my God, we could leave the United Kingdom. We never had that with the, the EU because we never thought it was going to happen. But there was a sudden fear that it could actually happen. And that's when the heart argument made itself. 
And we're actually seeing a similar thing in Scotland at the moment post-COVID. It was the, the impact of COVID mm -hmm. and the crisis in the economy mm -hmm. has made the argument of the heart without us having to say very mm -hmm. much at all. No. Polling for support for independence is still pretty high, isn't it? Yeah, it's, but it's never gone beyond, it's never for any significant period gone where it went at the date of the referendum. And you're finding in Scotland now 18 to 25 year olds, who are 16 to 25 year olds to be more correct, who five years ago were saying, yeah, of course we should be in our own. Because of what they went through during COVID, and because of what they're going through now in the economic crisis, they want the security of the United Kingdom. Okay, so um, looking at this side of the room, yeah, being very patient, the man in the white shirt. And then I'll come to you. You know you're that side. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, question about perspectives. I wonder, does the opacity of devolved power, so different systems, different responsibilities in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, London, West Midlands, none for England, does that serve to encourage and foster disengagement politically? And does that emphasise easy answers, be they muscular unionism or nationalism? Thank you. And then the chap over here. Uh, hi, sorry. Um, so something that was actually just briefly raised as well was um, the idea that uh, uh, an agreed trigger for the Scottish government to succeed, so, it should, so should it choose, from the United Kingdom. Um, uh, personally, I believe that that would actually help a lot of the mistrust that has been built and allowed to grow between, quite frankly, two growing camps between sort of separatists in Holyrood and muscular unionists in Westminster. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that by having an agreed upon trigger in the same way that Northern Ireland has would help to reset the relationship between Holyrood and Westminster and actually have a much more sensible conversation and less weaponization, as mentioned in the earlier talks, about the constitution of the UK. And this is the law, not the politics of the constitution. Great Thank question. You. Thank you. And then one more, um, yeah, woman over there. Thanks very much. Oriel Miller from the Institute of Welsh Affairs. Um, I'm curious as to the panel's views on democratic education throughout the life course, please, coming from your varying perspectives, because it seems to me that's a shared interest and responsibility of all governments, regardless of your political views. Thank you. OK, so um, these are the final questions that we'll deal with. We've got a few minutes. Um, can I put that first one to you, Jess? Because, it, I mean, it's, it's something you do hear a lot about, you know, the complexity of English governments. I think the term you used was opacity, which is a very, mm. very good term, I think, to use. Is, that, is there a link between that and sort of disengagement in some ways? Is that part of the problem? Absolutely, I think. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know. It, it feels very British to sort of muddle through a little bit. Um, um, but there is a sort of, you know, the, how we are where we are, particularly in England, is a sort of product of years of history. and. Um, waves of local government reform and we're sort of in this in this um, position that we kind of find ourselves um, it it absolutely is I mean I find I struggle to understand it sometimes and it's kind of my day job um, and so I can understand why people don't kind of understand exactly what they're voting for um, there is a in the English context there's a link between 
what you pay in kind of council tax or what you think you pay and then what you get where actually the, the vast majority of spend from local government is on um, services for highly vulnerable people like homelessness, adult social care, children. So, so there's not a kind of link between what you think you contribute, how you vote and what you think you get as an, in, as an individual living uh, in a community. So in other countries that do have more decentralised systems, um, there is a clearer kind of spatial distinction between what happens nationally strategically what might happen regionally and then at the municipal level and that kind of clarity of function I think does serve to under people understand the efficacy of voting um, and but they also understand accountability who they can go to for what and I think there's no local government's full of all these kind of differences between statutory and discretionary spend and it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated and there is absolutely a case for for rationalising it, and and um, and I think that would absolutely increase public engagement. I'm not sure we could have a long conversation on that. We haven't got time, I'm afraid. I'm just going to move on to the second question, Kieran. Direct that to you. The sort of is there because you have written about this. This as somebody mentioned it. This this sort of dilemma is the union based on consent? Is it based on law? Um, if it is based on consent, does it, does it follow that there should be clarity over the terms, the method by which? Well, I just think. If unusually for a nation state in the 21st century, you're prepared to countenance secession, then and it's a law and it's lawful to pursue it, then you need to provide some way of getting um, of, of, of getting there. So at the minute we're in a uh, um, how many votes does it take in the Scottish? How many seats does it take in the Scottish Parliament to trigger a referendum? Not going to tell you how long is it? How long do you have to wait since the last referendum? Not going to tell you. And I think at some point, not now because we've been through it, but at some point that becomes. Uh, uh, unsustainable. Really quick word on uh, opacity. Um, I do think, and we were going to talk about this within the time, uh, COVID uh, did show some real opacity, and this is where I shake off my soggy centrism on devolution <laughs> and get quite hardline secure crap. I do think there are real lessons. We can't, can't go through a national crisis again with different international travel laws, etc., no. etc. Et There's some real learning yeah. from that that we need to take into uh, account when looking at how the state functions, for as long as it functions in its current way. Thank you. Christine, do you want to come in on the trigger? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, actually, because every time it, it comes up, there's an argument. And then, you know, the union has to justify why it won't define it. And then the nationalists say, well, you know, there should be a trigger and this is the trigger and we've decided it. It's a mess. And it just leads to more and more argument. And the thing I find most amusing about it is nobody ever talks about what would England want to leave the union? There's this assumption that England is the union. England's not. Mm. England's, a, and that also is part of the problem. It's consent for other nations to leave England mm. rather than to split mm. the union. So the sooner we have that clarified and we have some mechanism, probably the better for all of us. Well, it would be the end of, of a state called the United Kingdom, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, which does beg the question, you know, is England just left as the rump or does there need to be a special arrangement for them? I think my problem with triggers is that they become targets. And I think that drawing the direct True. analogy from Northern Ireland is, isn't the right one. I mean, I think Kieran set it out, you know, the exceptional nature of Northern Ireland. I mean, had I gone back 100 years, I would never have had a storm of parliament. A true unionist would have said, uh, Antrim is as British as Pembrokeshire. Um, but that didn't happen. And not exceptionalism became the case, mm. and exceptionalism is certainly the case now, bearing in mind the international unique nature of the treaty. But, but I think to use that as a, a way of extrapolating what should happen in Wales and Scotland, I, I think would be wrong. Interesting point to end on. We haven't touched democratic education. Anyone really quickly want to say something about that? Because I think it's a very interesting point. What you're suggesting, this is something that 
is common, obviously, across the UK. Um, did you have anything particular in mind? What you were? Mm. Yeah. Right. So why don't we take that idea and fold it into mm. the next panel? Actually, I think that is a very good point. Um, so, thank you, thank you to all the questioners. Uh, a huge thank you to the panel. We've really we've raced around the UK and its many issues and its opacity, which uh, I think is a very good term to use, um, and given you a sense, I think, of some of the themes certainly we've been wrestling with in this, the context of the review, and that no doubt all of us will continue to grapple with in years to come. Thank you very much. Please stay in your seats uh, because we're going to change over to the next panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.